people are going to lose faith in the currency. They're going to say, wait a second, inflation is here, it's getting worse, and you're not doing anything about it. How can I put my money in dollars when inflation is running 6, 7, 8 percent and you're not doing anything about it? Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. We're speaking with Jesse Felder today. He's well known for his cool head, his unbiased approach to markets, and also his ability to frame big picture complex macro forces into bite-sized, easy to understand formats. And so that's what we're reaching out today. We're gonna look at just what are the underlying forces going on with how the Fed is impacting the markets and how therefore might that impact you. Jesse, thanks so much for joining today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Bradford. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So we spoke to you quite a while ago at this point, but for folks that aren't familiar, maybe just a little bit of your background. Um, How did you get interested in such big picture forces, these macroeconomic forces? And, and then I would love to transition to just what are your thoughts today? What are you focusing on? Yeah, well, you know, I, I started my career in uh, you know, the late mid to late 90s at, at Bear Stearns. And uh, with my, you know, boss there, we, we left and co-founded a hedge fund firm in, in Los Angeles and did that for a few years before I uh, basically decided to um, leave the, the, the mainstream Wall Street business. Um, you know, it was, you know, didn't take me long to realize that I wanted to do things differently. Uh-huh. And uh so I, I started my own, basically like a, I called it an extended family office. I was just managing money for friends and family for a period of about 15 years, uh, which led me to start the Felder Report, um, just uh, basically like a stock market investing newsletter um, back in 2015. So I, you know, since then, I've just been doing research. But I think it's, you know, if you understand market history, at least recent market history, you know that, you know, basically I started my career in the lead up to the dot com bubble. Uh, and, you know, prices peaked in 2000 when I was only three, four, five years in the business and rolled over into a dramatic bear market where a lot of, you know, NASDAQ stocks declined 90% mm-hmm. plus, 99% in many cases. Um, then, you know, Alan Greenspan lowered interest rates to 1% and basically engineered a housing bubble to try and rescue the economy from a bursting stock market bubble. Then when that blew up in 2008, we had the financial great financial crisis and all these things. And since then, uh, I feel like the, the central bank has been trying to support asset markets in, the, in a way that we've never seen before in order to try and prop up the economy. And so, you know, I, I started my career as a value investor, but through the course of watching central bank policy and, and, and a lot of these different things, I, you know, I, I, I came to the realization a while ago that you have to have a macro focus. You have to be paying attention to what's going on at that level, you know, in the very least to just be able to protect yourself against these types of crashes and things that are happening as a result of, I believe, uh, extreme experimental monetary policy. So, um, yeah, I mean, so, so some of the things I'm watching today are, uh, you know, I, I do believe uh, the stock market is a in the midst of a speculative mania that has been driven by a combination of not just monetary policy, but fiscal policy. This time we saw M2, the money supply, just scream higher uh, over the, you know, through the pandemic as we, you know, sent money into uh, directly to consumers. And a lot of that money went into the asset markets. 
Um, and valuations suggest this is the most overvalued stock market in history, more than than it was 20 years ago or, you know, 100 years ago almost in, in, before the 1929 crash. So that's kind of the, the main thing that I'm looking at. But I'm also looking at inflation, and, uh, and I have been for the last several years um, concerned about the prospects of inflation, how to protect myself uh, against that. So those are kind of basically my main, my main focus. That's a really good nutshell. Um, so I, I think I mentioned a moment ago, just before we got on camera, I was visiting some friends recently in Montana. And of course, I'm just droning on about all this macro stuff, and they're probably incredibly bored by it. And, and of course, for my position and perhaps yours, it feels so relevant to our life, but it's very difficult to draw those connection lines. And maybe we could do a little bit of those connectings from this big macro kind of out there ethereal stuff to our everyday life. And maybe let's start with the money supply, because I think people are really used to this idea of. QE, uh, what people would loosely call money printing sometimes. But there's been a bit of a transition from just propping up asset prices to now perhaps supporting the government's budget. And so maybe help walk me through a little bit of this process and, and how these big picture forces actually are impacting our life today. Well, I think, you know, if there's one thing I could help, you know, hope, that uh, the, every every person could understand it's it's how this extreme monetary policy has been affecting us as a country. I think uh, you know there's been a lot of um, lip service paid to income inequality and wealth inequality and these things, and I think not enough discussion of the Fed's role in this. With the Fed supporting asset prices now, really since. Alan Greenspan came to the stock market's rescue in the 1987 crash, lowered interest rates, not because of anything that was going on in the economy, but just because the stock market crashed. Um, uh, you know, that's kind of set a precedent for the Fed ever since. So that wins, when asset markets weaken, the Fed comes in and, and loosens monetary policy to protect uh, the, the holders of assets. And in the process, they have, in, you know, created... Uh, you know what a lot of economists called uh, called moral hazard, which is you've encouraged speculators to take on far more risk than they otherwise would, under the belief that the Fed will always come and rescue them. And so you get uh, asset valuations that are the most extreme in history because people feel like it's a can't lose mm -hmm. situation. The Fed will always come in and rescue us. So you hear you know buy the dip and all these kinds of things and these mantras. Um, because, you know, in, in, since Jay Powell, um, you know, over the past 18 months or so that, you know, the, the, uh, it's gone viral, you know, money printer goes burr, you know, then the money printer goes burr. So you have to buy stocks. And so you get all these different types of manifestations of the idea that we can't lose that pushes people into the asset markets to take way more risk, pushes valuations up, and basically means the, 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 the small amount of the population that owns the majority of the, you know, the financial assets becomes more, you know, more and more wealthy. And so you know, the, the Fed to say uh, that you know, we are um, explicitly doing QE, essentially printing money to buy assets in order to support asset prices, but we have no role to play in wealth inequality is extremely disingenuous. 
And I think we're really seeing it um, through the pandemic. I just read a fascinating article in, um, I think it was The Guardian, about how the, the California housing market, I think, is a really good representation of this. Fresno mm -hmm. has always been a city in California that's always been uh, the most affordable housing in the state. Um, housing prices are up or, you know, how much, 40, 50 percent in the last, you know, over two year period in a lot of places. Rents now in Fresno are up 30 percent year over year. Whoa. And so now you find the city is, is short 30,000 affordable housing units and all these people who lived there, which has a 15, 50 percent Latino population and, uh, you know, who can't afford to live there anymore because rents have screamed higher. And, um, you know, so and homelessness is now up 69 percent over the last 12 months. So Fed, the Fed comes into the market, they, they buy up. Treasury bonds essentially push interest rates lower, mortgage rates come down, home prices go through the roof, and now you have a whole you know, millennial generation that's being priced out of uh, the housing market. And the consequences are rising homelessness and people being, you know, and, and, and inflation uh, in things that we need, like, uh, you know, food and shelter. And it's it's really a sad situation uh, that, that we're in now, I think, where the Fed feels like it is forced to support the economy in this way, even though it is clearly hurting some of the most vulnerable people in the population. Mm -hmm. That's why I love speaking with you, Jesse. You, you're able to connect these dots so much better than I probably ever could. So we just laid out how the Fed has been propping up asset prices and how that trickles into our everyday life. What about now that they're supporting the government's budget of, it seems like, if the treasury is going to spend, there was all this stimulus during COVID and we just had another round. So the treasury is spending money and someone's got to pay for that money. And it seems like the right pocket's paying for the left pocket. How is that going to impact us on an everyday basis? Maybe not even today yet, but perhaps, you know, ripple effects in our future. Well, you know, the Fed has been telling us for a year now that inflation is going to be transitory, that mm -hmm. we're going to have a burst in inflation as the economy reopens from the pandemic and that it's going to subside. And the reason I think they've had so much confidence in that forecast, which has been proven you know, significantly you know, wrong over the past few months, the reason they, I think they've had so much confidence is that they printed a ton of money in the wake of the great financial crisis. So starting in, 2000, in late 2008, all the way, you know, through to 2015 when they, you know, 16 when they tapered purchasing, they, you know, they printed a ton of money and we really didn't see a lot of inflation, at least in, you know, CPI readings or the Fed's preferred uh, measure, PCE. Uh, and so I think they, they believed that, you know, money printing doesn't cause inflation. What is different this cycle is uh, in the past, uh, quantitative easing was discretionary policy. Fed said, we are going to do this to push interest rates down and try and support the economy. Uh, what's different this time is they're now doing it because they're forced to. So with the fiscal you know, side of things, essentially Congress saying, we're going to go spend one, two, three trillion dollars. That has to be paid for somehow, like you, like you said, Bradford. So uh, that's either we have to issue three trillion dollars of new debt in order to pay for that, or we have to raise taxes on other areas. And of course, they're not going to raise taxes 
because they can't do that, especially during different economic times that they'll create more problems. So we're going to just issue debt. We're going to issue $3 trillion of debt to pay for this spending. Well, if the market were to just get hit with $3 trillion worth of new debt, that supply coming into the market would push interest rates up and cause problems of its own. So the Fed was essentially forced to come in and say, we are going to buy up all $3 trillion of this new debt. Because there's new supply coming into the market, we have to be the demand to come in to prevent interest rates from going up and basically suppress interest rates through this time period. So this monetizing of the debt uh, is is a more overt, um, essentially printing money to pay for spending than it was back during the QE time, which was more of a discretionary policy. This is, this is not discretionary. The Fed is being forced to do this. And that's a term that uh, economists call this fiscal dominance. Hmm. When the fiscal authorities spend so much that the Fed can no longer be independent and has to monetize the debt, that is necessarily inflationary. And so I think that's what we're seeing, the, the consequences of this. And it's no coincidence now that the, the Treasury is, is tapering its issuance of debt. The Treasury says we don't need, you know, we're not spending as much anymore, so we don't need to sell, any, sell you know, as many bonds over the next few months. And now, just coincidentally, the, the Fed is saying, okay, we're going to start tapering our purchases. And I think that's something that people haven't talked about either. Is this is absolutely coordinated, mm-hmm. right? The Fed is trying to maintain a sense or perception of independence because that's what you know gives people confidence in the currency and all these other things. But it's so it, 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 it's absolutely not independent anymore. And the only reason they're able to start tapering purchases this month of uh, you know rein in their quantitative easing is because. The Treasury is also tapering its issuance of debt. So we're in a situation now of, you know, like I said, fiscal dominance, where the the Fed is essentially forced to monetize all this debt issuance, otherwise risk interest rates, you know, screaming higher. And so that's a situation that creates inflation and uh, is, is is a dangerous situation. It's something we haven't seen really since the, you know, the 1960s. So you're saying the Treasury spending and this flood of new bonds coming to the market. And if someone wasn't buying in mass, interest rates would rise. So the Fed is buying to keep interest rates low, yet you're saying that will inevitably cause inflation, which the only tool to counteract inflation is raising interest rates anyways. It, it feels like this yeah. a bit of a, I'm visualizing a corner and someone being backed into it right now. It, Absolutely. The Fed, the Fed knows that they are are creating inflation right now, but what they they believe. So you know, I, I've I've essentially framed this as the Fed has a choice to make. They have to choose between the devil and the deep blue sea, and the devil is the the devil. You know, it's another asset price crash. If the Fed says we're not going to buy up all this debt, interest rates are going to go up, and we're not going to, and people are going to think, oh wait a second, the Fed is not supporting the asset markets anymore. Well, these valuations are extreme and the stock market would potentially crash and the bond market would, would go down too as interest rates go up significantly. That's one option the Fed has to say, no, we need to maintain independence and we can't create inflation. So we are going to not buy up this new treasury issuance and we're going to be disciplined. That would potentially create an asset price crash of you know stocks and bonds. The other choice is, okay, we're going to go ahead and monetize all this debt and we're going to risk inflation taking off uh, well above our 2% uh, 
uh, metric, which is, you know, the Fed has said we want, we're shooting for a target of 2% inflation every year. We've now had, I think, four months in a row of inflation over 5%. So, you know, they're seeing this as the lesser of two evils. They'd rather uh, print money and support the asset markets and allow inflation to go up than, than do the opposite and be kind of vigilant towards inflation and risk an asset price bust. And I'm certainly no expert on inflation, but it seems like a, a very interesting force where it appears a, a bit a bit reflexive. You get a little bit and it kind of feeds on itself and it can just grow and grow almost on its own. Is, is that the worry that it can kind of just take off or is just a little bit of inflation, these four or five percent, is that manageable? Um. I mean, it's it's a good question. I I do think probably four or five percent. You know, so so the problem the Fed has is, uh, you know, they're concerned about wage inflation, mm-hmm. and and wage inflation is the one. I mean, and this is ironic, right? Because the Fed is ostensibly they're they're telling us they're doing this to support the average consumer, the average worker. But at the same time, they're saying if wages start to go, you know, really accelerate, then that's what's going to concern them. They're going to have to rein that in. Mm. So they're okay with asset price inflation, but they're not okay with wage inflation, which the, the best thing for the wealthy is that situation is keep wages down because that's good for corporate profit margins and let asset prices scream higher. That's the best situation mm-hmm. for the top 1%, uh, you know, wealthiest in this country. Now, uh, for the every every man, the, the every woman, the working person, the consumer, the best situation would be for wages to go up and inflation to actually stay pretty low. So, in real terms, they're making more money mm-hmm. um, as as time goes on. Now, that's that's not what we're seeing, right? Right now, we're seeing inflation run five percent, and wages, you know, are maybe keeping up with that. And so, it's I think uh, uh, for a lot of people. They're getting squeezed, right? They're they're making X dollars, and their costs, you know, the cost of food and energy and rent and all these things are are going up faster than their wages. So that's that's a very you know problematic um, situation to be in, and it, it's not it's not tenable. Um, this is what we saw in the 1970s, and you started seeing you know housewives literally picketing in the streets, saying you know stop inflation now because. Uh, you know, families couldn't afford to go grocery shopping, couldn't afford to fill up their gas tank. And so I think we're potentially in the early stages of, of another type of situation like that, where uh, cost of living is rising faster than wages. And that's 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 a really difficult situation for, for the society as a whole. Hmm. And so a bit of a cynical way to look at this is we've got so much debt perhaps they're wanting more inflation than they're letting on to, to help pay that debt down. Do you, do you think there's any merit to that? Or is that, is that kind of just a, perhaps a too cynical perspective? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. That I think that's part of what fiscal dominance is, is the, 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 the fiscal authorities, the treasury mm-hmm. Congress takes on so much debt to the point were that if interest rates go up, you have a debt spiral where, you know, essentially um, the cost of servicing that debt can can exceed the uh, the amount of revenue coming in via taxes and things. And so, you know, that that's a situation, uh, you know, that's very 
detrimental to to any you know sovereign entity unless you are the United States which is you know the the owner of the reserve the world's mm-hmm. reserve currency and essentially could print our way out of you know and 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 that's what we're doing is we're we're basically saying there's no way to grow us grow out of this debt problem so we have to inflate the debt away um, or essentially monetize it and that's what we're, we're doing both we're inflating it away and monetizing it right now and that's that's something that is absolutely critical for for most people to understand and i think this is also behind you know the popularity of cryptocurrencies a lot of cryptocurrencies especially bitcoin aficionados understand that in in uh you know an environment where the value of money is rapidly uh diminishing deteriorating you need to own things that are limited in supply in order to protect yourself because uh, for, from that you know be your your the value of your your currency being rapidly diminished so um, I don't necessarily agree with uh, you know Bitcoin aficionados on on that being the the ideal vehicle for for the situation, but it's something that's really important for everybody to understand. Consumers that that this that this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I get asked often when talking about these things, and someone says, "Well, why can't we just be a little more fiscally responsible with our budget, and then just over the next number of years pay down the debt?" So I'm going to pass that question on to you. Why, how could we do that? Or perhaps why can we not do that? It's a great question. My, my answer is um, go ahead and try and get elected on that platform. Good, good luck. <laughs> Nobody's going to get elected on that platform um, that we're going to rein in spending and we're going to raise taxes and we're going to balance the budget because right now the what people have learned, the lesson people have learned from the last 10 years and everybody is you know uh, affected by recency bias. This is the idea that you know the, the last three, five, ten years is our understanding of of what is reality. And so the last ten years, the history of the last ten years is print as much money as you want, and it doesn't cause inflation. There are no costs to it. So this is now a bipartisan belief that that we can literally go spend as much as we want. We can cut taxes as far as we want, and we can print the money. To, to fill the, the fiscal hole, and there are no consequences. And so somebody coming in to say, yes, no, wait a second, there are consequences. They're like, what are you talking about? Prove it. Prove that there are consequences. So we're going to, I think it's sad, but we're going to have to go through a, a period of time where inflation becomes really, you know, sticky. It's, it's here, I mean, potentially probably a stagflationary environment where inflation um, you know, grows at least as fast, you know, roughly as fast as the economy so that the economy feels like it's not growing at all and inflate and prices and things feel like they're growing rapidly. That has to go on for a period of time before people realize, wait a second, maybe there is a consequence to all of this uh, fiscal, you know, spending and monetary, um, you know, extreme monetary policy. And that, that consequence is inflation and we don't like it. Um, right now, you know, you, it's interesting to watch the narrative change. My friend Ben Hunt has, has, has kind of tracked this very closely, where at first inflation was going to be transitory, transitory. Now that it's not transitory, it's sticking around, and there's no sign of it abating anytime soon. Um, uh, people are saying, well, a little bit of inflation is a good thing, right? 
And so th- there's this narrative. It's almost like the five stages of grief, right? You go yeah. from denial to, you know, and, and you have to go through this thing till you finally get angry about inflation. And then you, you know, make up your mind to, to, to do something about it. And I think that's how we kind of have to go through it as a society till we get to the point where we go, okay, wait a second. No, inflation's not a good thing. This is a really bad thing. And we're, and we're seeing homelessness go up and we're seeing people, you know, the, you know, food banks, um, you know, see demand uh, rise dramatically. And these are the consequences of these policies. And so, but, it, but right now there's not that, um, that uh, psychological foundation for that message to resonate with people. Well, I think we definitely, we want to trust our leaders. And in some cases we have experience where we can trust our leaders, but you know, ultimately it's a game of numbers. And I would rather trust the numbers and the data than trust what they're saying. Uh, real recently, Tiff Macklin, so he's in charge of the Kane Central Bank. He was in an interview and someone was like pushing on this, this concept of transitory inflation. Cause that's, all the central bankers are saying this, not just the Fed. And he says, he said, I believe this is verbatim. I, I could be dicing words just a bit, but he said, transitory, but not short-lived. <laughs> so that's his now new understanding or his line of how this inflation is going to be. And I think yeah. like you're saying, we're just watch, we're going to watch this transition between finally and acceptance. And, yeah. Yeah. and perhaps, you know, the, the saddest thing is we're going to, the, what's going to the dollar store? It's going to be a hundred dollar store. And, you know, and, and it's weird to think about that, but that is inflation. It's, it's the, it's the goods. We're still going to be able to purchase them perhaps if your income keeps up, but if it doesn't, then it's this train you're trying to catch it and it's running away from you. And so looking back at history, where do we go from here? Are there any kind of, um, windows we can we can look and read about to have some kind of some sense of where we're going for because as you say it's different than just say the tech bubble we're in a different paradigm where if we do have a correction the fed could come in with tons and tons of liquidity and keep propping this thing up for quite a while and so it it seems like we're looking at perhaps a balance of payment crisis almost but yet we're the but yet we're, we have the world's reserve currency. So what, what kind of historical analogies might there be out there? You know, I think looking back at the 60s, 70s, you know, time period is, uh, is, is probably the closest analog that we have. Yeah. Uh, although asset prices are much more extreme today than they were back then. Home prices, stock prices, everything is uh, so they're so much more extreme. But uh, you know, when you go back and you read that, you know, some people have done, um, I, I can't think of, there's, I think Project Syndicate um, published something over the summer that was a, a really fascinating analogy um, you know, between then and now and how um, the central bank at the time believed the same thing, that inflation was going to pick up for a time and then it would naturally, naturally wane and, and go away. Um, and, you know, what happens is, and I think today is, is I mean, it's it's absolutely extraordinary to, to think about because the, the numbers, not just the numbers, but the, the relatively speaking, the deficit to GDP is so much bigger today than it was in the 60s. And in, in monetary policy is so much more extremely dovish today than it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. That led to that 70s inflationary decade. Um, I mean, to think about that inflation's running at 5% today, 
a neutral Fed funds rate uh, would be 5 to 6%, and it's zero today. And the Fed's not even considering raising interest rates for another six, seven, eight months. Um, they're printing $120 billion of new currency every month, and they're, think they're talking about slowing that down by $15 billion a month uh, you know, and, and potentially ending it next summer. So that's not even tightening monetary policy. That's just getting less dovish, slightly less dovish when inflation, you know, the PPI number today was, you know, 8% plus. Mm -hmm. We're seeing, you know, small business intentions to raise prices, the highest level in history, higher than the 1970s. Oh, wow. So you have all these inflationary dynamics that are suggesting um, that inflation pressures are not going away. They're getting stronger. And the Fed is so far behind the curve. It's it's so much more um, dramatic than it was, uh, you know, half century ago that, you know, it could become a very, very serious problem. Like you said, if asset markets start to roll over, the Fed is going to be in a very difficult position. They're already printing $100 billion a month and interest rates are at zero. And if inflation is high, are they going to be able to come to the market's rescue? Or are people going to say, hey, wait a second, right? You, you can't get even more dovish with inflation doing what it's doing. So at some point, you know, you mentioned the balance of payments crisis. I think the thing to watch, and I've been saying this for, for two, three years now at least, is watch the dollar. Because at some point, if the, if the markets roll over, inflation's still high, and the Fed wants to come to the stock market's rescue, the current people are going to lose faith in, faith in the, the currency. And the dollar is going to drop dramatically against you know the euro, yen, and these things. And that's going to put the Fed in an even more difficult position, because obviously a falling currency is, is even more inflationary. It may, means all of the stuff. I and mean, the trade deficit just hit a new record. So, you know, we obviously are importing tons of goods from abroad. Um, and, and that's also, you know, part of this, these supply chain issues and things. Um, but, you know, if we have a, a record trade deficit and the dollar starts going down amid an inflationary impulse, that means inflation is just going to go that much higher and make it that much more difficult for the Fed to continue to be, you know, dovishly supporting markets. So we're 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 approaching a situation, I think, where the Fed is not going to be able to choose asset markets mm. any longer over inflation. They're going to be forced to say inflation, and then this is something Paul Tudor Jones has talked about, and Mohammed Al Aryan has suggested that. Because the Fed is so far behind the curve today, at some point, Paul Tudor Jones said, you know, about a month ago, somebody's going to have to come in and eventually put the hammer down mm -hmm. and say, we're going to have to raise the Fed. We're going to have to end QE, just hard stop, go from 100 billion to zero. And we're going to have to raise the Fed funds rate to two, three, four, five, six percent. What happens to asset prices in that scenario? That's that's actually a scary thing to think about. If you can get five, you know, even three, four, five percent in T-bills, um, this idea that there is no alternative to owning stocks, mm -hmm. you know, the Tina trade goes away and you say, okay, wait, no, now I can go buy, um, you know, treasury bills and get three, four, five percent. So the, I, I really do think we are, you know, inflation is going to bring this central bank policy to a head. And I don't think it's going to be interest rates. My friend Bill Fleckenstein has said that eventually the bond market's going to take the printing press away. That just means interest rates are going to go up to the point where the Fed uh, is going to have to fight inflation. I don't know if it's going to be the bond market or I think it's more likely the currency market 
where, uh, you know, people are going to lose faith in the currency. They're going to say, wait a section, inflation is here. It's getting worse and you're not doing anything about it. How can I put my money in dollars when inflation's running six, seven, eight percent? You're not doing anything about it. That those dollars are just rapidly eroding in value. And so, when the currency goes down, the Fed's going to have to support the currency. The way they do that is by tightening monetary policy. And in that scenario, how does the government pay down its debt? How does it stay solvent if such a massive percentage of the yearly budget is paying even just interest? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a scenario. I, I personally believe there's no way the Fed's going to be able to remove itself from the treasury market. I think it's now probably a permanent fixture in the treasury market for, for my lifetime. Um, and, and that, you know, what makes me say that is you go back to 2019, pre-pandemic, and the problems in the repo market were essentially because we were selling so many new treasury bills, even before all this new debt issuance that re- resulted the pandemic. But Trump's just as a result, result of uh, Trump's you know corporate tax cuts, we had a pretty significant deficit, mm-hmm. and we were filling that deficit by selling treasury bills, and the treasury market became overwhelmed, and so repo rates just went to the moon because banks, you know, were by my understanding, banks were buying up all of the, a lot of these treasury bills. And not they didn't have the capital left over to fund these repo trades, um, and hey, a lot of the, the treasury bills were also being bought by super highly leveraged uh, hedge funds who were buying up all the treasury bills and borrowing in the repo market in order to to make those trades happen and basically collecting the difference when they couldn't fund their trades in you know couldn't borrow in the repo markets anymore they couldn't buy the treasury bills and that was potentially going to create. A, a, a small scale debt spiral where interest rates were going to go way up and they were already going way up in the repo market. So the Fed had to come in, start Q, QE again, start buying treasury bills and step into the repo market. And now they're doing trillion dollars uh, of repo consistently. Um, and so it's, so to me, that was, you know, the, the Fed had to come in and rescue the repo markets or essentially rescue the treasury bill market early on, well before the pandemic, and then print $3 trillion in the pandemic, mm-hmm. tells me the treasury market can no longer function without, without the Fed. So we might be in a situation where they have to maintain support of the treasury market, but then they would have to maybe you know raise interest rates even higher than they otherwise would in order to be able to maintain Q, this dovishness on the one hand, on the QE side, and you know the hawkishness of raising, uh, raising interest rates on the other side. They might have to uh, you know, raise rates even more you know, than they otherwise would in order to to maintain their position in the treasury market. That that's what really the Fed wants. What the federal government wants is they want inflation. They essentially want negative real interest rates, right? We, because that's the way they're going to pay back uh, this debt. The, the way they're going to inflate it away. So if the government can pay one and a half percent on its ten year treasury notes, and inflation's running three, four, five then that's how you get out of this this debt situation. So that's what the Fed wants to maintain. They want to keep those long-term rates lower, and they want inflation to run a little bit higher than that because that's essentially just a necessity right now. Um, but if inflation really does you know, maintain at its current level or pick up, as I think it, it could over the next few months, it's going to make it really, really difficult for the Fed to, to maintain that dovish stance. Sounds like a very fine line that we need to at least the picture you're painting it i'm glad i'm not in charge 
Yeah, no, I, th- I think, you know, all, all the past central bankers living in debt are looking down on Jay Powell and saying, man, I'm so glad I'm not in his shoes because it's, it's, a, it's a no-win situation right now. And, and what's just mind-boggling is the fact that he may not get renominated because he's not dovish enough. Oh, right. I, I don't know if you, you've seen it, but Jay Powell and uh, Lael Brainerd, you know, uh, both visited the White House in the past week, essentially interviewing for the job. Jay Powell's interviewing to keep his job. Mm. Lael Brainerd's interviewing to say, hey, I, I'll, I'll be even more dovish than Jay Powell. And so if Jay Powell loses his job for not even being dovish enough, that tells you a lot about, you know, the true independence of the Fed, you know, that it's not really independent at all. And it tells you, you know, just gives you clues as to, to where we're headed over the next few years in terms of inflation and these things. As if, if you know, the Biden administration um, thinks, you know, Jay Powell's not dovish enough, uh, then we're headed for, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these problems that I've, I've kind of been suggesting could, could arise. Yeah. So for, for your person who's, they're understanding this perhaps is a bit murky. Of course, there's, there's always more to learn. And, and, and I'd say, you know, macroeconomics, it's like a puzzle, but it's all, it's the other side's moving too. So you can't ever solve it. It's, it's this constantly solvable, but unsolvable problem. So, you know, the first step, someone just keep learning more, but someone who's not super financially savvy, but they're interested in this stuff and they want to protect their purchasing power in the future. If there's going to be more inflation, for just your average person, what are they to do? I mean, it's a really great, great question. And just to be clear, my understanding of all this stuff is is really murky too. Yeah. There is no, <laughs> there is no real clear picture of yeah. this stuff. It's essentially putting together as many of the puzzle pieces as you can, and trying to come to just rational conclusions using common sense. Uh, you know, and and I think that's really the kind of the name of the game, but. It is more art than science. And, and so I think for most people, you know, the simple thing to understand is when uh, the money supply, you know, the M2 is, you know, growing 20% plus, uh, essentially there's more dollars in circulation. The value of those dollars is going down. Supply goes up, you know, the price, the price uh, of those things goes down. The value of your dollars are going down. So how do you protect yourself? Well, uh, you know, the, the supply of financial assets is not capped either, right? We're seeing the number, the amount of treasury debt massively. So tre- treasury bonds aren't going to protect you. Stocks too. We've seen, you know, the, the amount of um, equities being sold. Look at the SPAC craze, special purpose acquisition companies this year. We've seen so much equity raised um, that, that that's not in limited supply either. So in an, in an environment when things are, you know, when the currency is being debased as rapidly as it is right now, you want to own things that are limited in, in supply, things that can't be, you know, uh, replicated. You can't make more of it. And those are typically called real assets. Um, and, you know, the, the four that, you know, I think of are, you know, commodities, real estate, precious metals, and treasury inflation protected securities. Now, that last one's probably my least favorite because it relies on the government's estimates of inflation. Um, the other ones are, you know, just uh, priced based, you know, based on market functioning. So you've seen commodities, you know, scream higher in the past year. You've seen, and you know, 
stocks and bonds have have done extremely well in the last year, 18 months, but they've done very poorly relative to commodities. You look at the oil price went from negative, right? We had oil prices went negative briefly during the pandemic to over $80 a barrel. So, you know, if you bought oil at, you know, 10, 15, $20 a barrel, you, you quadrupled your money. Um, now there's, there's easier ways of, of owning those types of things. I, I personally like commodity focused equities. And so it's ironic to me that one of the cheapest sectors in the stock market today is, uh, you know, the precious metals mining companies, um, that they're, they're probably cheaper relative to the S&P 500 than they've ever been. Mm. And at a time when the macro backdrop is probably more bullish for these companies than it's ever been. So for some, so essentially in the markets, you have investors betting that inflation is transitory. They're betting, they're believing the Fed that inflation is going to go away. That's the only way that you buy, put all your money into growth stocks because growth stocks discount cash flows way, way into the future. The lower you know, your discount rate goes, the more those cash flows are worth in the future. But if the, your discount rate goes up, the, value of those, the present value of those cash flows goes way down. So growth stocks in an inflationary environment are one of the probably the worst things that, that you want to own because your discount rate's probably going up. Um, and, and so I, I do think investors are positioned generally in the exact opposite fashion that would be ideal for an inflationary environment. So essentially, they're, they're making a huge bet that inflation will prove, prove transitory. Now, if they're right, then, then they'll do fine on those trades. But if they're wrong and inflation proves to be um, not transitory and sticks around for a while, maybe even gets worse, then I think a lot of investors are going to be wishing they owned a lot less growth stocks, maybe a lot less stocks and bonds generally, and a lot more real assets. Mm -hmm. A lot of millennials right now are thinking about or have recently got into the housing market for the first time. Plenty have been there for a while, but many still aren't. There, of course, there's a large spread. What would you suggest to that person who is looking at getting a house in what seems like a wildly out of control real estate market, would you in those shoes be taking on some debt, taking a mortgage to get a house? Or are you going to be like, would you be looking around for a more affordable first time home? Even that meant like leaving your community, it just all across the board, I speak to my peers and like all of us are, are quest are having these questions in one way or another. Yeah. I, I think, if you're looking to buy a house that you're going to live in mm -hmm. for the duration of your mortgage, let's, let's just say even 20, 20 years plus, then it makes sense to buy a house today, even at inflated prices, because, you know, your, your biggest cost is, is that mortgage payment. And if you can borrow money at, you know, 2.75% for 30 years today or whatever well. it is, two and a half percent. It's that that right there is an unbelievable opportunity that the Fed is giving people. And that's why housing prices are going up so much. Um, and we may not, you know, you may not get that chance again. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to give people FOMO to, yeah. to go you know, more than they already have <laughs> to go to buy a house. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, but I mean, I, honestly, that was three, three or three or four years ago. I told my wife, I said, let's we should be buying as much real estate as we can today mm -hmm. because 
the Fed is is going to be you know uh, debasing the currency as much as they can. This is you know pre pre pandemic and everything, and uh, when you can own cash flow generating entities that you can the cash flow adjusts with inflation, that's one of the best things you can own. And and but you know. So that's real estate's doing what it should right now. We're seeing rents go up 20, 30% plus, you know, in a lot of places. Um, and that's the benefit of owning real estate is when inflation does what it does, rents go up and it preserves the value of that real estate. Now, if you're going to, if you're looking to buy a house for three to five years, you know, for me personally, I would be concerned that I'm going to pay a price today that prices could easily come down 20, 30% over a three to five year period. And if I'm feeling like, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to need to sell that house in three to five years, I'm going to maybe wish, be in a situation where I wish I didn't pay mm-hmm. uh, this price, which, you know, uh, I spend most of my time in Bend and prices in Bend are up 50% from 2019 to 2021. Yeah, wow. And those, those you know, think, just think about it. If mortgage rates go from 2.5% back up to 4.5%, all those price gains are going to evaporate immediately because that's how everybody prices. You know, I'm willing to pay X because my mortgage payment is is Y. So, um, yeah. So if interest rates do go up, if the if somebody like Paul Tudor Jones has said is forced to come in and put the hammer down, then real estate prices are going to come down. And and so I, I you know, I'm not willing to. I, I'm not. I don't have enough confidence to bet on real estate prices going down. But I also wouldn't feel comfortable today, you know, buying a buying a ton of real estate at, at current prices, unless you know it's I'm buying my you know primary residence. I'm going to live there for ten plus years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can weather some underwater for a little bit there, as long as I mean you locked in at a crazy low rate. Right. So I've heard you in the past speak a bit about crypto. I mean, you mentioned here even a little bit as well, and the. The pathway, you appreciate why people are investing or buy into the crypto narrative, but you disagree necessarily in the vehicle of choice. Can you elaborate a little bit further? Yeah, I actually applaud people who have done all the research in crypto, and, and, I, and I absolutely agree 100% with the thinking behind it that, uh, you know, fiat currencies are, you know, by their nature um, you know, designed to be uh, good for governments and bad for holders of those currencies. Um, and that's being put to the test. I mean, like, right, how, how bad for people and how good for governments can they be? That's what the government's doing right now. How much will you let us get away with? And so, yeah, you do want to own something, you know, say, okay, well, what are, what, what's a good currency alternative? Mm-hmm. Now, like I mentioned, I want to own things that are truly limited in supply. And people will say, well, Bitcoin is limited in, in supply. And I would just say, you know, Bitcoin is hard forked several times. There's Bitcoin cash. There's different, ty- you know, several different Bitcoins. So to me, that that is false that, you know, you can immediately double the supply of Bitcoin by through a hard fork. Then you also there's an unlimited number of cryptocurrencies that can be created. We're seeing this with with, uh, you know, Dogecoin was created as a joke. Uh, to, and and uh, then you had Shiba Inu which was like a joke of the joke. And now you have um, Floki, Floki coin, which is, you know, named after Elon Musk's dog. And so to me, that is, is uh, evidence that 
cryptocurrencies are by no means limited in supply that the the number of limited uh, of cryptocurrencies potentially in circulation is absolutely unlimited and that's something to me that that uh, makes it um, you know uninvestable for me now I'm talking about investing as a speculation you know great I think you know Paul Tudor Jones is speculating in, in Bitcoin and he said it's his preferred speculative vehicle right now because of the popularity of those things. So I think as long as you acknowledge you're speculating in cryptocurrencies, then then great. And you're using it at, you know, you're saying I'm doing this because of what's going on in the money supply and all these things. I, I get it. Um, it's just it's not um, it's not for me. I, I personally, um, you know, look for things that have a margin of safety that I can justify as an investment. And basically as an investment, it needs to have uh, protection of principle and it has to deliver, you know, uh, a, a guaranteed rate of return, a reasonable rate of return above and beyond the risk-free rate. Um, and so if it, if it doesn't do that sort of, you know, if I can't justify those things, then to me, it's, it's just not a valid investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I fully understand. I mean, we've done some speculation as well, but I this point i'm just one person but at this point i'm like fully thinking oh, where's how, where's an exit strategy when am i getting out like I'm, I'm not looking to get in anymore at this point but that's everyone's own decision of course and it definitely the thing that brought me to it initially was the narrative but then that was a, you know a number of years ago and now i'm like oh the, the narrative itself is so strong and that's what's kind of worrying in the short medium term i suppose is these these narratives that we tell ourselves the thing the thing i you know that's a great point because the thing that's the thing i worry about most mm -hmm. is one thing i think you learn early on um whether you're an avid you know amateur investor trader or professional you you usually learn early on is to never get married to a trade or an investment there's nothing that's worth owning um you know permanently uh, and never having a reason to sell. I think there's always, you always need to have a discipline, um, some type of risk management saying, okay, I'm willing to lose X amount. And if I lose that, I'm out of the trade, mm -hmm. um, just to make sure that you don't lose everything. And, you know, some type of, uh, you know, reason to sell some type of sell discipline, which is whether, you know, the, the price hit my target, um, it became fully valued, the, the narrative, the underlying story changed. It turned out I was wrong. There's so many reasons, good reasons to sell. And I don't think people um, think about those enough. And I don't think they, most, most people who have started trading in the last few years don't understand the concept of risk management. I think, I feel like they are just push all their chips in and hope it works out. And the history of that, when a lot of people do that, the history of that is not good. Um, you know, the history of that is, is people usually lose everything. Yeah. And so if there's one thing I could encourage people to do, it's just think about risk management. Think about a sell discipline. What would, what would have to happen for me to consider selling? And usually that is, uh, for me, uh, in my experience, it's I have a reason for buying. When that reason changes, um, you know, I have to rethink the investment from, from the beginning. And, you know, if you read one of my favorite books is Market Wizards, uh, another great one, you know, talks about these concepts is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator oh, um, by Jesse Livermore. I'd love to read Famous the first one trading. you suggested by the second. Yeah, it's super good. Yeah. No, I, Market Wizards is fantastic, too. It's essentially 
the same message you get from reminiscences, okay. but through the eyes down. of 20 different, the most successful, you know, hedge fund managers in, in, in history. And, um, you know, they all, you know, Jesse Livermore famously said, uh, you know, when you've discovered you're wrong, there's only one thing to do, and that's get out of the trade. It's sell. And so I think a lot of people don't realize that. They, they, they say, okay, I bought it for this reason. I found out that reason was wrong, and I'm going to come up with a, you know, I'm going to re-rationalize owning this thing in a different way. And you're not going to approach it as like, okay, would I buy it under these new conditions? You're going to say, I already own it. And so you have a bias towards just hanging on to it and hoping it goes higher. And so, um, you know, I, I just think encouraging people to to think about these types of things, risk management um, and having some type of a sell discipline is key to, to long-term success mm-hmm. in the markets, no matter what you're trading. Yeah, I definitely have found that as a new investor in the last, you know, four or five years, that it's often quite challenging to buy at the right, at the what would be the right time. It's, it's very difficult to sell sometimes when when something is done well or if it's doing poorly. It's so strange, and so that's uh, I mean, I, you put it to words so well, and you know, I think probably let's wrap up there. Those are some great little uh, nuggets of wisdom, and um, say those books one more time for folks who might want to check them out: the Market Wizards, and then. Market Wizards, the original Market Wizards, but also the new Market Wizards is good too. Oh, okay. if, you, if you read the first one, you want more. Jack Schwager um, wrote both. They're, they're basically a series of interviews he, he did with some of the greatest traders of all time. Um, and Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Edwin Lefebvre wrote it essentially as the fictional biography of Jesse Livermore, but it's, it's like tra- you know, Paul Tudor Jones is basically his, his trading Bible. Oh, wow. Um, and so many great lessons in there. Yeah. He, anybody who goes to work for, for Paul Tudor Jones, he is given a copy of that book. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's short, so it's an easy read too, which is nice. And then yeah. if folks want to find more of your work, cause you, you put out a lot of free content. You also have some paid content and I'm always, you know, checking your Twitter feed every now and again, reading your blog posts. There's so many good nuggets there. Where can folks find more of your work? Yeah. I'm just at Jesse Felder on, on Twitter um, I just kind of put a bunch of the stuff I'm reading there, charts and things that I find of interest. And the FelderReport.com is where I put up, you know, blog posts and uh, podcasts. Speaking of, um, you know, difficult uh, purchases, I, I recently interviewed my friend Todd Harrison about the cannabis sector, which until the last few days was just looking like death. And <laughs> to try and buy late last week was one of the most difficult trades um, you know, but to me, that's that's a wonderful sign that 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 sector is potentially bottoming. And so, um, yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right. Usually, the time to buy is when it's most difficult. And the same thing with selling. Mm-hmm. So, well, I'm sure you had to sell something that had been doing well as well. And you're like, well, it could just leave it in there for a little longer, as the process goes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jesse. It's not easy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Bradford. It was uh, my pleasure. Well, it looks like you stuck with us to the end, and thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, rate, and review. It honestly is the best way to help us reach a broader audience, and that's the only way we can keep bringing you good content every single week, and that is our goal here. So we look forward to seeing you next week, and thank you so much.